and welcome to the Invisible Cabaret podcast. I'm Ferrero Rochelle. And I'm Rosie Verbose. Back in pre-corona times, we began Invisible Cabaret, a variety entertainment troupe devoted to stripping away stigma surrounding mental health. We performed in venues across London and were looking forward to our first small tour of the UK. Sadly, the pandemic had other ideas. So we adapted our mission to form the Invisible Cabaret podcast. We talk to all sorts of artists about what creativity means for their mental health, thus making the invisible visible. See what we did there. Please note, we at Invisible Cabaret are not mental health professionals. If you're affected by any of the issues raised in this programme, or are struggling with your mental health in any way, we've made a list of resources for you on our website, www.invisiblecabaret.org forward slash podcast forward slash resources. Yes, welcome to the Invisible Cabaret podcast. This is our last episode before the Christmas break. And in the spirit of Christmas, we're thinking of things that are important to us at this time of year. We're thinking of spending time with family. Some of us might not be able to do that because of uh, lockdown restrictions. And yeah, just trying to keep it in the family this episode. So we're very privileged Overjoyed. I'm very excited. I know Roz is too. I'm super excited. I'm pumped. <laughs> to welcome my lovely dad, therapist, Brian Thomas. Yay! It's happening! <laughs> I'm so thrilled. Good morning. Good morning. Hello! How are you doing? Doing all right. Yeah, doing okay, thank you. Pleased to be here. Oh, thank you so much for being here. We've said for maybe in two or three episodes now, um, and I mean, you've just said you listened to them, so presumably you've known this was coming. I thought it was coming, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. When I yeah. listened to the last few, I thought, hmm, <laughs> I might be getting a call at some stage. Well, thank you so much for answering that call. Pleasure. Yes, we are very excited to have you. Although it's a bit strange, because it's my dad. <laughs> It's very funny. Yeah, I have listened to all the shows, actually, and uh, being likened to a character out of uh, Oliver Twist was also interesting. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. Yeah, so had I. Sorry, Dad. Blimey. <laughs> Blimey. But you know what I mean? I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Although I know that when you're doing a session, you're much... Like, obviously, you've still got your accent, but you... You kind of have like professional Brian, professional. Brian. Well, I thought I did. I thought I really thought I did, but people, <laughs> but people say it slips all over the place when I'm in meetings <laughs> afterwards. So you go, oh man, it was funny what you said there and stuff like that. And I rang the office the other day and, and they said, oh yeah, because this person we're working with, they really know their onions. Well, the, the office is in Shrewsbury. They never talk like that, so they must have got it off me, mustn't they? You know. Yes, that's wonderful that's a classic Brian Thomas catchphrase yeah Yeah, absolutely um yeah I think because I've got a bit of an accent that's a bit like yours and a bit like mum's and Matt picks up on it a lot that when I spend a lot of time with you I start talking a bit like that Mm. and Ros is nodding (laughs) and when I spend time with mum or any of my Cambridge friends like the lovely Rosie for base (laughs) I start talking a little a little bit posher (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of which, Brian, should we should we jump straight in? Where do, where does your accent hail from? Uh, my, my my accent <laughs> hails from uh, sort of uh, northeast London with yeah. a merge of Essex, I think. Doing my stomping up there, but yeah, sort of northeast London around that way. Love it. Yeah. yeah. And we talked briefly about it in um in the episode of the Burley photographer that you found over the years that it it's quite handy to 
to chat the way you do and you know it's a bit like being down the pub and that there's certain people who when you're when you're talking to them they they kind of respond well to that oh absolutely yeah I mean there's so many times I always I always say after the first therapy session I always say to them what was that like you know what was what was because we do like um I get people to monitor their mood for the next week in therapy. I've, I've always done it so because because emotions are hard, easier, sorry, to grasp. So I can imagine it's harder to say I was thinking this, but it's very easy to say I was feeling sad, I was feeling anxious, I was feeling feelings of dread. You know, so I always say to them, "What were your thoughts just before this first therapy session?" Imagine you now you're on the way driving to the therapy session if, if you're in clinic, and they say I was really anxious and. And, they, and I say, well, what about it? And they go, yeah, it's not that bad at all, really, is it? It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. So it puts people at ease, I think. Yeah, definitely. It's not Everyone's got some uh, preconceived conceptions about what therapy might be. Um, normally laying in a chair and <laughs> somebody uh, ask, you know, asking questions about their, their past life or whatever. But it's not like that. It's not like that at all. So it puts people at ease, yeah. So answer your question in a roundabout way, Ross. Yeah, it does. Puts people, <laughs> puts people at ease, yeah. I'd like to think so anyway. I can totally see that. I'm pleased to um, think about that episode we did with the Burley photographer. Richard was talking a lot about the difficulty with getting men into therapy and that there is a lot of stigma still and embarrassment about asking for help and even necessarily talking about your emotions. I would be interested to know kind of like, do you have a speciality of patients that you work with or is it just whoever comes through your door? No, right across the range. I mean, going back to what you were saying about what Richard said there, they're absolutely right. Once upon a time, it was very, very rare for me to see a man in clinic. Very rare because it's just like that sort of, uh, you know, the, the gender idea that the boys or men bottle things up and the idea is that men don't talk about things well where, where women are more inclined to be open about things thankfully that's very different now it's not unusual for me to have a whole day of men how fantastic is that that is amazing it's so different and that that has changed i can tell you now ros that has changed in about four years i reckon in about four years wow. a massive shift um there is still a gap and i would say i don't think that'll ever change of men of around 55, 60 above, they won't come into therapy. It's very, very unusual. Less so, you know, uh, women of any age will come in. Every now and then I might see someone and they say, well, I'm only here because my, my employer said I've got to be here. But in terms of men, no, it's changed dramatically, which is great, which is all about that idea of we're speaking about things more. And to answer your question about specialism, no, I, I'm happy to see whatever problem comes in the door. Sometimes I quite like working with OCD because that's quite good because people think I'm going to get them to change their um, behaviours, first of all, and I never do. I always work on their emotion. So someone's got to check it, check it behaviour. Um, where they, maybe someone's got to check the door about safety, fear of safety. What we do, well, I get them to work on their emotions rather than just reduce that 10 checks down to 9, down to 8 because they still got that emotion. So I get them to think about their anxiety. We really work on the anxiety. And then once they've brought that anxiety down and they're standing by the door, they go... I don't really need to do this, do I? These 10 checks. So they're just in a different place. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I work with it. But, yeah, whatever comes through the door, really. Whatever, whatever problem people got. Yeah. That must be awesome as well to know that um, that people are coming in with one idea of what therapy is or what they're gonna what you're gonna make them do, and then they find actually that they feel better. I mean, shock horror. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? Yeah. Yeah. Just by just by talking about stuff. Yeah. 
because they've, so bottled, they've bottled it up for so long. They've bottled it up for so long. And so that, that first phone call or that first interaction is so important. So that relationship with your therapist is really important. Another part of my job is um, just sort of like making sure the people who are getting therapy are getting the best therapy. And sometimes people say, oh, I've waited five or six sessions and I really don't like my therapist. And I will say, look, if you don't like your therapist, you've got to say it in the first week because that therapeutic relationship is so important because if you don't, you don't trust that person or you don't really get what they're saying or you're not on message, then, then you're never, the therapy's not going to be helpful. That's really interesting. I was about to ask, Dad, um, what, how many sessions would you say... Uh, is kind of the, the starter amount to like gauge your relationship with your therapist. But you'd say you have to say something from week one. I would definitely, yeah, you definitely say that from week one. Definitely because I deliver CBT. So CBT, I'll talk about it. I'll show a quite a, a basic model so people get it because you don't want to, you never want to blind people with science. And, and sometimes the problems might be again, in that role of making sure someone gets a good service, it's because that that therapist, wherever they are in the country, is really stuck to the model. Now, you need the model, definitely, but you also got to be personable. You've got to have that idea of being able to relate to that person and they can relate to you. And one of the things I'll do when I'm explaining CBT is I'll say, look, part of CBT is a bit like homework, you know, as well as doing stuff in session, you do stuff out. Now, you might come back next week, whoever this person I'm working with, and say, Brian, that's absolute rubbish. I'm never doing that again. And that makes people laugh. And they go, no, that's good. That's all right. I said, there's no pass or fail. You just, you just try your best. And whatever you come back with, that gives us something to work with in the next session. Because mm, I think... That's also one of the um, criticisms of CBT is that there is this element of homework and that you have to fill out paperwork to try and identify how you're feeling. You have to tick boxes and fill out forms. And that's one of the criticisms is that how how are you supposed to get those emotions on paper? But I think the idea of laughing about it and, and having a, a conversation about the, the fact that it's not pass or fail, you are filling out these forms but you might not enjoy them but that's that's okay it's got to be bespoke it's got to be not week one do this week two do this it's got to be bespoke so again i might be working with someone and they'll bring in the room something i wasn't expecting so i'll just i'll visibly just tip everything on the floor and say right let's focus on you what's this this week i've had people say to me i don't do homework i had a dreadful time at school i don't i don't do homework and i'll go fine let's do something else then what else can we do? How, how else can we make this work for you? In which case, I guess what you're saying is that you have to go in the door as a patient and be very honest about what your therapist is giving you as well. Because I think there is a prevailing psychology among people in general, this idea that if there's a health professional there, what they say goes. Yeah. And it's important that you go along with whatever they're telling you because that's why they're in the chair and not you, right? So it must be, for some people, a, a huge hurdle to actually be honest about what you're putting down in therapy. That's really, really interesting. Really such a good point because, you know, for people listening, the best thing they can think about is the only expert is them. They know them. Right. They're the expert. Right. And the therapist is just working alongside them trying a few things out because they've got this toolbox that they're going to share with them. I say, well, what about this? Have you tried this? You may, they, I will say to people, they may even have lots of the tools and skills already. They've just fallen to the bottom of the toolbox and they need to just juggle it about and get them out and re-put them in there a little bit, you know? I guess it must be so hard for someone who's in a really, really difficult space, who's feeling broken and at the, you know, bottom of their emotional pit to go into a room and accept that they are the expert because 
you know, there must be people, I know of people who would go in and be like, I'm broken, I yeah. need someone to fix me, you are the only person that can fix me, I'm going to sit here and accept it. And if I don't like what you're saying, there's nothing I can do about it. So it must... And also it's a me problem, not a therapist yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and for those examples, that's about just slowly getting that person back to a place where they can go into the toolbox themselves. It's just a bit like being maybe in charge of an orchestra and you're watching everything and watching everything that's happened in front of you and seeing when this person is ready. Because, again, having that approach of, well, you're the expert, come on, you, if someone's not in that place, then, then that's going to be more detrimental, isn't it? So it's about get, it's getting it right. And we've spoken before, Dad, about the benefits of medication in those kind of situations. Yeah. Because... You know, I've grown up thinking people don't necessarily need medication. If they've got a good therapist, they're going to be fine. They don't need to go on medication if they don't want to. But sometimes people are in a particular space where the medication is designed to help them be more receptive to therapy, to get them out of that bottom of the pit so that they can start absorbing what is being communicated in the room. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you done my analogy on this on this podcast about medication? No, I haven't, no. Let's say I've got a damaged leg, okay? So I've got something wrong with my leg. Someone will give me a crutch, and that crutch is going to support me, and it's going to get me to physio, and it's going to get me out and about and start walking and get some fresh air, and it's going to really help me. But it's not going to fix my leg. The crutch won't just fix my leg. So I just left the crutch by the side of my leg. It's not going to fix it. And that's exactly the same way of thinking about medication. Medication is a fantastic support. And it, but it won't fix everything in terms of... So some people who are on medication for a long, long time may feel lots of benefits from it, but maybe, just maybe, they need something else on top of that as well. So along with that support, so it's like a balance. Medication is fantastic to get someone to get in their head in a space to think, wow, I, my motivation's lifted a little bit. Yeah, maybe I will try this therapy and I've heard some stuff about it. I'll give this a go. But that's so interesting what you're, what you're saying about the, the analogy of it being a, a crutch is such an interesting and loaded word, right? Mm. Because um, some people will say that medication is a, a crutch and therefore you shouldn't use it um, because you should do it all yourself. What, mm. do you, what would you well, say Well, you think, right, so you think of uh, medication and, and, and this is n by no means a uh, dig at GPs who get five minutes sometimes with their patients if they're lucky, whereas a therapist can get an hour how fantastic is that how fantastic to be in a room just to talk about you for an hour that's that's so helpful as a patient isn't it whereas so to get you in the room so if you think about an anxiolytic so something that brings down your anxiety i'm so anxious i'm just fizzing and i just can't concentrate on anything and i can't sit still and i'm feeling sick all the time that that anxiety can be brought down to get you to think think about things a little bit more uh, clearer perhaps um but that doesn't mean you can do it all on your own, so you need that support from therapy, but the medication may just get you in that room. Or if we're working, if I'm working with someone, and I might even suggest it, so I wouldn't suggest medication from day one, but if I could see there's a problem here and we're doing all this great work, but actually I'm, I'm just we're just struggling, that person's really struggling with that motivation, they're really, really low, and they just can't see a, a little light at the end of the tunnel. It's just there's just blackness, there's no light there at all. Then just perhaps that medication, conversations about medication... Um, might be just that thing that just triggers that fight. One thing I did want to ask, you just picked up, uh, you just said a minute ago about um, conducting an orchestra, right? Yes. So 
presumably, Brian, then you're you're a sensitive chap, right? So you're sensitive. You can read people. Um, you must have to pick up on very small cues. Mm-hmm. I'm so fascinated. Have you always been like that? Is that something they teach you in therapy school? I mean, how does one become that sensitive? So a uh, big thing. So my background is mental health nurse, and right. the big thing about mental health nurse training is about listening and communicating and perception of what people are presenting with. But actually, I find that I found that a bit of the train of oh, I know this. So maybe yeah, maybe I was, maybe I was, yeah. And then when you go into therapy, again, a huge part of that training is about interactions with people and being. Mm perceptive and picking up on it because if you don't then that can be that can be that's that problem isn't it all therapists have supervision so um, that's about using uh, another experienced practitioner to think about some of the cases and some of the things that may be stuck and what they're moving along but again you'd have to be perceptive to bring that to supervision wouldn't you to recognize that things weren't right i want to ask you brian um can we backtrack to what you were saying before about so you started off as a mental health nurse. Can I ask what the difference is between that and 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 what you've ended up doing, which is obviously very different? I sort of fell into the job a little bit. I'm, as my family will know, I'm not very good with my hands. Really, I'm not a DIYer. You know, I'll make a mess of everything. Useless. Nor am I, mate. This will take, this will take ten minutes, but. It doesn't, and I'm rubbish. But I'm very good at talking, and I'm very good at listening. So I sort of fell into this role of mental health nurse. So I did my mental health nurse training in a forensic high secure hospital, which is a bit of a sharp end, and and then realised that I just didn't want to... Like people doing lots of jobs, they specialise, don't they? As a therapist, you, you've got some um, different avenues to support people. So I thought I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to venture into therapy. After my nurse training, did my therapy training, was delivering groups in a forensic hospital, which is very different to living in the community, you can imagine, because it's just the topic of the groups, perhaps. Um, yeah, and then left, left uh, working for the NHS and then went private. So the difference, I think, about therapy is, is just that, is that you can, you can see a beginning and an end uh, journey quicker um, and more beneficial, I think. Got you. OK, OK. Presumably that must have been a bit of a baptism by fire in terms of the the people you were working with or is it just like people are people and it was a start if you think about mental health and um, people who um, um sadly or fortunately depending where they are in their life get they have to be sectioned to come into hospital mm. um but i was working in a forensic hospital so that was um people have committed crimes because they don't because of their mental health and and yeah so it was a sharp end because people didn't want to be in hospital they didn't really they were very very unwell um we're thinking about psychosis and and quite extreme um forms of of violent behavior perhaps so yeah we might we would be delivering groups that might end up um they might end up as we ended to we thought they might end up really so there might be an incident or somebody might get fed up with person who's sitting next to them or or experience them something that wasn't very nice to experience in terms of it internally and yeah very difficult delivering therapy could take years in a in a forensic environment whereas whereas in the community you know you can you can see the difference in somebody's um well-being in in weeks i was there for 20 years um and i think there should be a, a shelf life for the for the staff because of the intensity of the work you do. But but if you think about it, we were doing work with people who had never had that work previously. 
you know, people that are very, very unwell have never had somebody sit down with them and explain what psychosis was or what anxiety was or what trauma was. And they go, wow, I get it now. I really understand why I've been... Of course, I I mean, we did uh, did a group called... um, uh, it was, it was called CBT for psychosis, and it was all about what psychosis was and where it, you know, how it can develop and, and the benefits of medication. And I had a guy who had stopped taking his medication, and he, without going into too much detail, saw something be- because of his psychosis. So it was so traumatic for him, and he knocked on the door of the therapy unit. He said, "Brian, I need to go back on medication." He said, "I really, I get it, I get it." So it was fantastic work, amazing work. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for a second. It was really, really powerful. But I suppose learning about nursing, learning about therapy in that environment, you can imagine that it. That what else can we? Could, there's nothing phases you really. I think if you've got that up, that background. Absolutely. When yeah. Yeah. So it's really, really, really uh, valuable. Man, I just oh, that gives me shivers just thinking about the the amazing transformation that can come from the work you do you know whether you see it in a few weeks with people in the community or it's as powerful as as someone literally not knowing what's happening to them I I can't get my head around how you could you know no one would tell you what you were experiencing or not tell you and make sure that you understood what was going on in, in your own and, and I think, yeah, so go back to your question about nursing and, and, and that, that, that um, picking up on cues and, and that's what you, that's, that mental health nurse, you know, it's vital to, to share that information with someone, just to sit and listen. They've never had that. Mm. And everyone deserves that, right? Oh, Absolutely. A para, we've said it already, the power of communication, you know, to sit, you know, Rush growing up, we'd spend hours on the at the table at dinner time. Probably only took 20 minutes to eat our food. But we'd spend <laughs> yeah. hours, hours just going over stuff that had happened for the kids growing up and mm-hmm. stuff that happened in school. And just to talk about stuff is powerful. Part of my role now is um, delivering workshops and things. <laughs> presentations and then we go to uh, places of employment and, and I say how many times you've been in conversations where somebody's telling you something and halfway through you're thinking I have just zoned out I don't remember what you're talking about they're going to ask me a question <laughs> and I, uh, I've really not picked this up or someone's had really something really really powerful to say they don't feel heard mm. because they haven't had that time and I say, and I say to them wouldn't it be fantastic if you get home from work and someone says how was your day and they just listen to you like that. How did you feel? Mm. What was that about? And you just have five or ten minutes talking. And then you go, and how was your day? And you just that communication is just offloading to each other is really important. It reminds me of the episode we just did with Alyssa, in which she was saying that she was like, I'm probably quite self-centered. I love talking about myself. <laughs> um, I love to communicate. I love chatting. I love a good chit-chat. But I probably could do more in terms of listening. And I am spending my time at the moment trying to be as self-aware as I possibly can and I definitely could do with listening more couldn't we all though mate I mean couldn't we, we could all? listening to ourselves and others yes exactly but I think I might try that dad you know mm. doing the actually stopping and how was your day actually stopping to listen mm. and rather than have your head in a cupboard or cooking something or right right how was your day even now when you and mum get home from work the two of you sit on the sofa and like 
decompress for a bit, don't you? Like the two of you sit and talk to each other about how your days were before you then get up and go and do stuff. Mm. Just stop. Yeah. Carving out time, isn't it? Yeah. Because, oh gosh, life's so hard and there are so many jobs to do all the time. So it's, right. you have to be very intentional about that. Yeah. That's exactly it. And everybody thinks we don't have enough time. It's like when I sit to do my yoga practices. The the YouTube video I follow, Yoga with Adrian, she's brilliant. The first thing she says is, well done for taking this time. Well done for stopping. You've done, you, you're doing a really good thing here by taking some time to do this, to take a moment for you. And I think we probably all could do with that, couldn't we? Just taking a moment, maybe not yoga, but maybe stopping to listen to each other or stopping to eat a meal and enjoy it and stopping to have a cup of tea. Like, we're so busy. We've got so many things to do. But those things are just as important, aren't they? Without a doubt. Oh, gosh, I'm going to have to go in and have a mental inventory about uh, how much time I carve out and spend. And one of our lovely troop members, Miss Mustard Seed, who is a, a nurse, uh, she has asked a, a really great question. Have you got it handy, Rosh? I do, yeah. So, Miss Mustard Seed asked, as a health professional, how do you cope when your patients continue to do things that they know are bad for them? What a great question. Because mm. we've been talking about people on the journey of therapy. And, right. But therapy is about reflecting to somebody. You may know where you want them to go, but they've got to get there themselves. So it's, it's that idea, um, uh, if that Socratic question it's called, that comes from the guy called Socrates who knew loads of stuff, but rather than telling people, he guided them, he guided them along. With that, when somebody is continually finding barriers it's about reflecting back and saying well what what do you think that's about why well, i wonder why that is why do you think that could and maybe it's because it's just too hard for that person at the time so we might need to regroup and think is this the right thing we should be focusing on maybe we need to focus on something else beforehand so one of the things we do in therapy is set goals and then that's just like pathways really and i will say to somebody well we just maybe we're on the wrong path maybe we need to come back and, and re-find out what that is and it's actually is this path really where you want it to be? Or maybe you wanted to try something else first. But it can get a bit um, frustrating, but you think, oh, this week, I really hope that person was going to come back. So it's maybe another thing we might want to do, and we can't do it very much at the moment, but is, is the behavior experiments and do it with someone. So the lovely thing about therapy is if somebody can't do something, is to go with them and just explore it and make small steps. So say somebody couldn't get on a train, for example, I would say, right, we're going to go to a station. We're not getting on the train. We're just going to stand at the station. So we just stand there and watch trains. Mm. And they say, all right, come on, we're going to get on the train. No, we're not going to do that. So you just, you're just leading people on a little bit. So just do, mm. do it slowly. And giving them moral support in to meet them where they're at. It just... Oh, that chokes me up, that that thought. We did have a question about PTSD and what that is, and that's come up in a, in a previous episode. From a therapist's point of view, how is it working with people with PTSD? What do you focus on? So PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, lots of people, if you speak to anybody and say, oh, PTSD, they go, oh, yeah, it's like a car crash or a war zone. It's mm. really important to think about. It's the trauma for that person. So the child that was seven years of age got made to stand on the school for the assembly on the stage with a headmaster and a cloak and a gown and was so frightened that they wet themselves now can't do a presentation in front of their work colleagues who they know really, really well and they just find them really friendly. So that trauma is there. So, you know, it could be growing up, issues they've had at school. It's not something they can put their finger on. So it's about going back and exploring what that's about. 
and trying to unpack that. Um, and there's different interventions, and, uh, and I know in a previous podcast you spoke about um, EMDR, um, and, and EMDR is, in terms, the new kid on the block. But what we used to do was um, for, for trauma-focused CPT, and what we'd do is, it, is the same um the same aspect, really, of going through that event, um, but we'd record it, um, and we'd record it, and then the person can take it away and listen to it. And you're looking for hot spots. Uh, I never thought I'd get out of the car alive, but with with EMDR, it's really that trust in the therapist to let themselves go in a way, and what you're doing is then turning that reliving uh, event into a memory. So rather than reliving it over and over and over, so they get all the sights and sounds and smells of whatever that thing was. I feel like we could talk for hours. <laughs> There's so many other things I wanted to ask you about, but we ju- I just don't think we have time. Maybe another Fortunately, time. Fortunately, you get access to Brian as well. I do, I yeah. can ask you tomorrow. <laughs> I can ask you later. I'll give you a call during your dinner. <laughs> just when you're about to pick up that book, Brian. <laughs> That's yeah. what you'll call. That is something that still happens, actually, is that when I call in the evening and mum and dad are having dinner, they won't hang up and say, we're having our dinner. They'll put me on speakerphone so I can sit around the dinner table oh, you lovely bunch. <laughs> what are you like? And Dad will be like, you're joining us for dinner. We're having risotto tonight. Oh. And then I will chat. And, uh... <laughs> That's so wholesome. It is quite wholesome, actually, yeah. isn't it? But we have got to that point in our podcast where we're going to talk about what we're grateful for this week. It's my favourite section. Obviously, talking to you, Dad, is also lovely. But let's talk about what we're grateful for. Dad, what are you grateful for? Well, actually, I'm grateful for my nose. Because um, uh, both me and Kaz, Russia's mum, had um, COVID quite bad. We were really ill, actually, back in March. So we've both developed uh, a bit of long COVID stuff. Uh, and one of them is that poor Kaz hasn't got any uh, taste and smell. Not much. It came back, about 10%, but it's disappeared again. So it just comes and goes. But fortunately, I haven't. And Kaz is not working at the moment. She's taking a bit of a break, which is lovely, and doing lots of cooking. So when I come in, if I've been to the clinic or I come downstairs because I'm working upstairs, the smell of cooking just goes round the house. It's fantastic. And I think, thank goodness I can smell that. So that's what I'm grateful for. That's <laughs> such a great one. That is a very good thing to be grateful for. Mum did uh, send a message to the family WhatsApp saying that she has been able to taste salted caramel vodka. Was it vodka? It was. <laughs> salted caramel yeah. vodka. Oh, that night. sounds good. <laughs> and it was a, it was a, it was a miniature. So uh, we've now bought a bottle. I <laughs> bet you have. I bet you <laughs> have. <laughs> right. I bet you have. Rosie for base. What are you grateful for this week? I love, love, love. The fact that, yeah, I, was, I will get to it. I just want to say that um, I love it when people focus on a sense for gratitude. I just think it's the the height of like being present and, and being and happy to be a human, even if mm. you're only happy with one of your senses. You know what I mean? Like, even if things are really terrible, garlic smells great or, you know, whatever. It does, it, do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I just think that's such a lovely... But it's also a therapy technique. Yeah, it is a therapy technique, isn't it? To be able to focus on your mm, senses, to calm sure. you down. Sure. If you're having a, a, an anxiety attack of some kind, you know, to be able to focus on the sights and smells and sounds that you're experiencing. So, yeah, definitely. Love that. It's a um, good one. So, I am, this week, I am grateful for uh, fairy lights. I'm grateful for them in my own house, in my own room. Uh, in And I'm also particularly grateful for people who put lights outside their houses. And I plan to say this even before 
uh, we spoke and uh, I heard about your uh, incident, Brian, with with said <laughs> said rigging. Um, but I I just want to say to all those people, from the very tasteful to the completely and utterly disgusting disgustingly beautiful um thank you for doing it because I I was on a dog walk the other day and I was having a really really rubbish day and just looking out at the dark you know because it's getting dark so early and it's gross and looking out into the darkness of the neighborhood and seeing it all lit up with different people's uh, definitions of what counts as nice decoration just made me smile when I don't think I'd smiled all day. So that's my that's my gratitude this week. Lovely. Thanks, uh, for listeners who don't know what Roz is referring to in <laughs> relation to my father rigging up lights outside his house, he's currently got an incredibly bloodshot eye because whilst putting up the decorations outside the house, poked himself in the eye with a twig or a branch or something from the outside garden so it's the best of us um it's all right still here i thought you'd be uh on this chat with an eye patch dad in all honesty but you uh, take care everyone out there just uh, (laughs) (laughs) christmas lights should come with uh, safety goggles and advisors but typical brian thomas he was like it's all right i've got another eye i'm fine (laughs) what do i need to all come out of the wash I love that phrase. Or something. Uh, <laughs> lovely. Rochelle, what are you grateful for this week? Oh, it's really boring because I'm always talking about these things. I have new housemates. I have new housemates. So not that I wasn't grateful for my old housemates. They were both lovely. But um, the new housemates have moved in and just immediately slotted in to the little family dynamic that we've got in our house. And they're both really fun and really silly. And we've already agreed that we're going to do a secret Santa. So we're doing that. And um, we're hopefully, before uh, London goes into tier three, we're going to try and go out as a house uh, for a a dinner somewhere. Um, And they're just really good people and really, really nice and really friendly. And, like, both have just got into the swing of things. And, yeah, it's just... it's made the house very jolly and friendly and always full of laughter. When I open the door, there's always people laughing and chatting and um, very sociable. I'm a people person. Get it from my dad. (laughs) And uh, it's lovely to have so much, uh, yeah, communication going on. Yeah, and joy. Gosh, we all need more laughter and silliness, don't we? Especially coming to the end of this rotter of a year. Yeah, too right. But yes, that's oh. that's what I'm grateful for. That's lovely. We've had a couple of people um, sending their uh, what they're grateful for as well. Um, so uh, the lovely lavish jewels, love that. Uh, who is a, a burlesker across the pond uh, has said that they are grateful for enjoying my own company and being able to cook lavishly for myself. Oh, hello. A love that just generally, and B love the branding. You know, the you know, carrying your personal brand into even what you're oh, grateful yeah. for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lavishly. Lavishly. Oh, we could all do with being a bit more lavish. Love I that. also think that's really admirable because when I'm at home on my own, I don't want to cook. I just, you know. Yeah, it's macaroni cheese for the fifth night, isn't it? It's, Eat toast, yeah. 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 It's rubbish. <laughs> well, take a take a leaf out of Lavish Jewel's book then. Um, and we've also had one from Lovely Curly Chaos who has said that they're grateful for sexual freedom, sexual freedom. Ooh, uh, 
So thank you very much for sending those in. And if you'd like to um, send in, you can send in what you're grateful for anytime, um, especially, you know, given the, the theme of this podcast, if you'd like someone to listen, if there's nobody in your life that you can say what you're grateful for, or they think it was a bit mushy, or, you know, just why are we bothering talking about it, send it to us because we want to hear it. Even if it's like, I'm grateful for the birds or 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 your nose or whatever it might be. Um <laughs> We'd always love to hear it. So you can send us a message on any of our socials uh, or you could even email us if you're feeling fancy. Lovely. So we're going to wrap up this episode right about now. Dad, thank you oh, for coming Brian, to chat to Brian, what us. a treat. It's been an absolute pleasure. Do I get to promote something? Because at the end of the story... They... I was about to ask yeah. you. <laughs> it's so excited. I know I've listened to so many. Um, yes, do you have anything you'd like to promote or plug? I do, actually. And the first thing is, because two, uh, the first thing is uh, anybody who hasn't um, listened to every one of these podcasts, I oh, would, mate. honestly, I would definitely recommend them. Um, they're brilliant for long walks, cycles, dreadfully boring long journeys in the car. Um, <laughs> you guys have come with me down to deepest Wiltshire, uh, over to uh, Medway and Kent, and it just puts you in a nice frame mind. You know, they, they say if you listen to um, loud rock music, for example, it could... Um, make you drive faster um, and I, mm. you know some people say oh listen to something that's chilled out it's yeah very chilled out great fun and quite oh. and quite upsetting when you turn around and realise there's actually nobody in the car with you and you thought all these people <laughs> were so <laughs> What a privilege and a joy to have accompanied you. Thank you for selling That's us okay. that. That's <laughs> um, And the second thing is uh, a bit of an unusual thing to promote, but um, um, a mate of mine, uh, Darren Brown, is a DJ on uh, a station called Soul Central Radio. Um, we were mates many, many years ago, and we sort of lost touch, and we've caught up via his show, and he's, uh, he's I've seen him a couple of times. Um oh. But it's quite nice, even if you're not into soul and jazz and funk, if you've had a heavy night, especially on a Saturday night, brilliant show on a Sunday morning, it's from 8 till 10, the breakfast show. There you go. Oh, man, I've just missed it for this week, but next week, I love a bit of soul and jazz and funk. That sounds great. That's a perfect thing to promote, Dad, because obviously this has been an episode primarily about mental health, not so much about the creativity side of things. But the thing you're promoting is, you know, two uh, creative avenues that are giving you some joy. And that's, I think that's pretty, pretty darn wonderful. Gorgeous. Cool. Thank you to all our listeners for listening today. We'll be gone for the Christmas break. Have a wonderful Christmas, everybody. And we'll be back in the new year. And don't forget that if wonderful is not achievable, okay is fine too absolutely <laughs> amen to that yeah be kind to yourselves and we'll see you soon bye 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 this has been the invisible cabaret podcast and thank you for listening if you've enjoyed this episode please do be sure to share it with a friend and let us know that you've enjoyed it on one of our many socials we're passionate about stripping away stigma with as many people as possible. And hearing feedback about the things that you and your friends have enjoyed listening to brings us nothing but joy. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Just search Invisible Cabaret.